Do you know why kangaroos are called kangaroos? It all goes back to, I think, 1770, when um, Lieutenant James Cook, the British explorer, one day he uh, happened upon the animal, which of course he had never seen before. No one had <laughs> ever seen it before from England. Yeah. Was very surprised and so asked um, a nearby local, uh, what do you call this animal? And the local answer, kangaroo. And so he wrote it down, kangaroo in his diary, etc., etc. Went home and told everyone that down there they have this interesting animal called kangaroo. But of course, in the language of the local, kangaroo meant, sorry, I don't understand you. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 47. And this is without doubt one of the most special episodes for me that I've released thus far. And that is because it's with Akile Varzi, who is John Dewey Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. And he's also Bruno Kessler, Honorary Professor at the University of Trento. And the reason that this episode is so important to me is that Akile, or Varzi, as I think of him, is so important to me. He, along with Haim, who there have been many episodes with, is one of the, well, I mean, the two, they're the two most important philosophers to me. Uh, personally, they're who I studied with when I was at Columbia, and Akile has been a wonderful friend, mentor, just a great person to talk to about anything. And he's really helped me a lot over the years, and I've learned so much from him both from classes and, and just talking outside of class. And not only that, but he is uh, a phenomenal philosopher. I mean, one of the best that there is. Uh, he can talk about so many things at such a high level. And he's always so, I don't know, kind when he's dealing with people like me who aren't as quick. Uh, but anyway, so Varzi Akile. He works on all sorts of things, but he's primarily known as a metaphysicist. So this is that's why I wanted to do this episode with Akile. What is metaphysics? So we talk about all sorts of things metaphysics, naturally. Uh, first, however, we talk about how Akile got into philosophy, uh, some thoughts on Wittgenstein, what it's like writing philosophy in a second language, because he's Italian, as you will have heard if, as planned, I included a little pre-clip before the introduction, which I'm hoping to do going forward. Uh, we also talk about Achilles' ridiculous sleeping habits, and you'll hear more about that. But as far as I can tell, it sounds crazy, but he averages maybe like three or four hours of sleep a night most of the year, and yet functions at this ridiculously high level. And a lot of people say that they do this, but... Akile is definitely not the person who would ever brag. I think it's just a fact about his life and how he works. Then we get into the metaphysics. We get into how metaphysics got its name, where it came, where it come from, where it came from. I meant to say where it came from and then started saying where it comes from. Then we also talk about the distinction between physics and metaphysics. On, we talk about ontolo ontology, metaphysics, truth makers, we talk about uh, 
nominalism. He's a nominalist, uh, and you'll hear more about that. And then we end with a bit of a discussion about Kripke, uh, Saul Kripke, the late Saul Kripke, because we recorded this. This has been in the archives for a while. We recorded this a few days after Saul Kripke passed away, which was, I will know, in exactly... He died on September 15th, 2022. So we probably recorded this uh, about four months ago, five months ago. I'll go with four. So without any further ado, Achilles Marvelous. You're going to love him if you don't already know him. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Achilles. Thank you, Akile, for joining me to do this. Uh, some of my fondest memories at Columbia are uh, getting to walk home with you after our metaphysics seminar on events when you would roll a cigarette and we would get to talk about various things. Yeah. Yeah, those are good memories. It's a pity you're no longer here yeah. in that regard. In other ways, of course, I'm really happy that you are uh, elsewhere pursuing your plans, your interests. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's good to be in touch. Yeah. So one thing that is nice about doing these interviews, particularly with people that I've already met, is that I can ask, I can interview them. I can ask them questions that I couldn't always ask when we were in person together, just because it might not be such interesting conversation for you, even if I would like to hear about it. So the first thing that I'm curious about is... No, no, wait, how... wait, wait, wait. I thought you asked every possible question when you were here. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, so no, no, saved... no. Oh, you saved stuff? I see. That's good. Yeah, I saved plenty. Um, so my, my the first question that I have, though, is how a cute little Italian bambino like you went from living in the mountains of Italy to ending up studying philosophy of all things at the University of Toronto. Wow, that's a long story uh, in a way. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Italy, uh, not in the mountains, actually. Oh, because you sent me those pictures from when you went home. Yeah, that's that's the place in the mountains I like to go. I love to go. But uh, I grew up in the flatland below those mountains in the middle of rice fields. So okay. it was, it was um, fog in winter and mosquitoes in the summer. And um, it's a small town, not far from Milan, which is well known for being the hometown of Achille Varzi, but not yours truly, but uh, a car racer. When you get to that town, there's even a sign that says, welcome to the hometown of Achille Varzi. <laughs> And he's like a cousin of yours, right? Say that again, sorry, is it? He's a cousin of yours? Uh, sort of second grade, third grade. My cousin's father. Let's, uh, my father's cousin, let's put it that way. Okay. And, um, but he was famous in the 30s and early 40s. Anyway, so I grew up in that environment, uh, mosquitoes, um, car racing in the past and so on. Eventually went to college uh, elsewhere in Italy and then as it sometimes happened, I fell in love with philosophy and with a certain way of doing philosophy. But was it just from coursework or where were you first exposed to it? 
Um, no, I was not, exp well, I did uh, philosophy in high school. In Italy, we do a lot of that. Uh, it's a history of philosophy. It's a crazy way of starting because you start from the pre-Socratics when you are 15. It doesn't make much sense. And then only later on you get to uh, read and discuss some, uh, let's say, comprehensible theories uh, for a student of that age. So we do the history of philosophy, but I didn't fall in love with philosophy at all at that time. I wanted to do something else. I was undecided between mathematics, the arts. I wanted to do restoration. I was very good at that, but I'm colorblind, so that's definitely not my field. Oh, yeah, that would be a, a conflict there. Chemistry. And then I wanted to do, you know, politics uh, and, and so on. And I ended up deciding to sign up for sociology because in my home country, Italy, you, as you were, declare your major on day one of uh, your college um, time. So you, in other words, um, uh, apply uh, for a specific uh, degree in an area. So I signed up for sociology because I thought, of, you know, the social world is important. And I like sociology, but after a while, I got exposed to some friends of mine who were, in fact, doing um, philosophy. And I realized that philosophy was more interesting than I thought it was, uh, given my high school years. And um, then I decided to specialize in philosophy. And then I thought, uh, well, I better go somewhere and get a PhD. There was no doctorate in Italy at that time. We're talking about the early 80s. Uh, now there is a way to get a, a doctoral degree, but back then it was just, um, let's say, a BA. And so at that time, of course, there was no internet, nothing. But I used to read the Journal of Philosophical Logic, and there were two names um, whose work I greatly admired and that influenced my own uh, study at that time. Footnote, I ended up writing a thesis on free logic and especially the semantics of free logic. So two names were Bas van Frassen and Hans Herzberger. It turns out both of them were on the editorial board of the Journal of Philosophical Logic at that time. And both of them were listed as University of Toronto. So I had no idea whatsoever what the academic world in North America was like. But I had this thought, well, I should probably go to Toronto and work with them. <laughs> which is why I applied. Uh, the application uh, itself was, as you may imagine, a complicated thing. I had to go to Milan, find where the Canadian consulate was located. Oh, wow. I eventually had an appointment with a person, very nice person there who, for the first time in uh, her life, had, had to deal with questions about applying for a PhD in Canada. And she gave me all sorts of... Um, helpful tips, eventually managed to apply and eventually managed to go there. So that's how it went. Um, but I owe a lot to my friends who introduced me to philosophy for the second time. Wittgenstein was the starting point. I must be uh, open here. Uh, the tractatus, though, not the uh, logical investigation, not, not the philosophical investigations. I fell in love with it, blah, blah, blah. That kind of I'm curious. I've never heard you talk about him uh in the past couple of years, is he still somebody that you're enamored with? Um, now it's a very complicated relationship that I have with Wittgenstein, but I do think that uh, 
the Tractatus had a huge influence on me, perhaps not academically, but in life. And this business of showing what cannot be said, which is to say of presenting things, the important things in the negative, had a huge impact on my taste in the arts and music and so on. That's why, for example, I like Schubert, but I don't like Wagner that much. That's why um, I became a big fan of Austrian literature with all those people writing about the limits of language, of my styles, um, uh, the last letter of Lord Chandos, the limits of language. All of that had a huge impact on me. And I think my life has been, to a great extent, um, driven by a broadly Wittgensteinian understanding of the importance of the difference between what you can say and what you cannot say, what you better not say. And, and here comes the real Wittgensteinian lesson. Of course, I don't know whether I was ever able to uh, benefit from it in practical ways or to apply my learning. But um, here's the thing, um, if what really matters it's not what we say, but what we don't say, as Wittgenstein once put it in a letter he wrote to one of the editors he contacted when he wanted to you know, publish the Tractatus and he couldn't find anyone. So he said, look, the most important part is, part is what's not there. But it shows through what's there in the negative, so to speak, right? Well, then it becomes very important to come up with some tool to draw the line between the sayable and the unsayable. Now, one example I often used to explain Wittgenstein's tractatus is this. I can't even do it with you, actually. I don't think I ever did it. Did I do the fish thing with you? No. Do the fish thing, please. I would love it. <laughs> well, now I actually gave it away already, but still, let me do it. So um, I once did it in the presence of Peter Vanewagen and Hold on, hold on. So for people who are just on audio, yeah. uh, Achille is tearing into some paper right now in a oh, particular right. shape. Good. I'm almost done. Okay. I'm doing it with my bare hands. Uh, you should all know that. Uh, yeah. So, this, so there we go. Uh, and now, where is it? Hold on. Voila. Okay. So I'm asking you, what do you see? I see a fish. Good. <laughs> of course, that's funny because the fish is exactly what's missing. The fish is here. You didn't see it, right? Right. <laughs> I so okay. So he uh, he cut point, out right? basically a fish in this paper, and I was quite wrong. No, in fact, but you do see a fish because I'm showing it to you by showing it everything else. I mean, you see everything else. Yeah. But everything else, the actual thing in front of you, somehow recedes to background. Right. And the hole in it becomes a foreground. And so I'm actually showing you the fish, even though you're not seeing it, because the fish, the piece of paper that I removed is uh, on the table elsewhere. And so I think the main point about the tractatus is to show the important fish um, by giving us a theory of language about everything else. Now, of course, I use my bare hands, so I could only do a fish. Um, mm -hmm. If I had a suitable 
you know, tool, I could draw the silhouette of, I don't know, uh, The, king, the Queen of England or the current King of England or uh, perhaps the uh, whatever, whatever beautiful picture I have in mind that I want to show you, I don't think I can come up with good words uh, to describe it. And so I'll do it in the negative this way. So the, the scissors here are, so to speak, the logical tools of the Tractatus. Um, my bare hands are obviously not uh, even close to it. But the idea is that sometimes this works much better than if I um, presented you with an attempt to describe that fish uh, directly. Uh, the negative experience uh, can be at various levels much more engaging, may I say that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Speaking of language and things that can be said, can't be said, and maybe shouldn't be said. So, Haim, as you know, Haim Gaveman uh, is somebody that's quite... Uh, dear to me, he, like you, came to do philosophy without having English as his first language. And he told me that when he started writing philosophy, even though he was trained, I think, a little more as a math mathematician and physicist, his way of combating uh, his lack of command over English was... Yeah to really focus on making sure he had historical details correct and fully fleshed out in his writing so that even if his writing itself wasn't perfect, the content, he had all of his like ducks in a row. This isn't, I'm not trying to relate this to, to Wittgenstein at all, but yeah. I, I remember you telling me something like this, like you, you adopted some very specific way of writing when you were at Toronto uh, to accommodate for your lack of na natural English ability. Does that ring any bells for you? It does, it does. Um, well, it's always a challenge to work in a language that's not your um, original one, the one you grew up with, um, which is an acquired language. Um, of course, learning a language as an adult delivers a completely different... Um, understanding of that language and in fact when i went to toronto <laughs> to study philosophy at the phd level uh, by you know at that time i my english was really bad uh, i had studied french so much so that when i arrived at the airport and i wanted to call my parents to say that i made it safely i went into a phone booth and I couldn't make sense of the English instruction, so I, I read the French instruction because luckily in Canada, um, even in uh, Ontario, they have uh, both languages as um, official for such purposes. So, so it was obviously very hard to uh, try and do philosophy, uh, read, but especially write philosophy in a different language. Um, but it has its own... Um, advantages because since you only know it uh, as an acquired skill you tend to go straight to the point whenever you want to say something um, you don't hide be behind the beautiful prose and the rest of it that comes with it the adverbs and the adjectives 
the metaphors and all of that. Um, hmm. That is that is an interesting point. But you sort of go straight to the point. And so everything you write, I mean, when you speak, it might be a little different. But when you write, so when you try to actually come to terms with this challenge uh, in, how can I say, a slightly more um, measured way, you realize that every sentence really is about something. There's no, there's no bullshitting. It's all about uh, what you want to say. And now, never mind the previous point about saying and non-saying. But uh, when it comes to trying to say something in a language, um, doing so in a, in a language you learn as an adult might have the advantage of uh, forcing you to go straight to the point. I mean, some people even theorized about this. Uh, just recently, my friend Andrea Moro, whom you might know, he's a, um, a linguist. Uh, he just published a book with uh, a, sh- a small book, short book with uh, Noam Chomsky for MIT Press. Um, he was telling me that uh, Eugene Ionesco, who wrote in um, a language that was not his own, not his own original language, did so precisely because he thought he could develop a style that his original language wouldn't allow him to uh, to pursue. Um, and of course, he wrote very important, uh, absolutely wonderful um, things in um, languages, more than one, in fact, uh, other than his own. Now, I, I, neither Heim nor myself <laughs> can in any way um, compete with uh, people like UNESCO. But I think the idea is the same. The advantage that I'm trying to... Um, describe is a similar uh, different way of making use of meaningful words in order to say something meaningful um, that being said it's of course always a challenge and i doubt i ever manage but that's a different story um, i disagree potentially potentially it is helpful um, even though i love writing in italian too i should say i sometimes do um, and uh, you know Sometimes I'm even uh, satisfied with what I write in Italian. But I suppose my writing in Italian now has been influenced um, by my English writing. So there is a feedback effect, so to speak. I read some of the stuff that I wrote when I was a teenager. I actually hated this stuff. (laughs) Well, I've read three of your books now in English, and I think you're a very good writer even in English. I don't know. But, this uh, isn't, you don't want to hear me just praise you over and over. I don't want to hear that. Yeah, exactly. I do have uh, one last question, though, about Varzi, the man and the legend, before we get into metaphysics. And this is one of the things that first struck me about you. I learned it from another graduate student. He told me, I don't know if it was an email or or you were just talking to the class, but you indicated in some way that you had woken up on your keyboard. Like in the morning you woke up and like your face was on your keyboard. And then it became evident to him, which he conveyed to me was that you don't sleep on a bed or you rarely sleep on the bed. You sleep on your desk or on your keyboard. And you typically, and after having talked to you about this many times, because I'm still pretty incredulous about it, Many nights you don't sleep at all, and some nights you only sleep for, or most nights it seems you only sleep for a few hours. 
And as somebody who is extremely cranky, if he is not in bed for nine and a half hours every night, uh, I am curious about how long you've kept this up and if I'm, was it difficult to start? I mean, how did, how did this end up happening? Because I can only imagine if I could, if I could unlock this Varzi ability, my productivity would go through the roof. Well, don't be silly, but the story that you just <laughs> told me, uh, must come from Haim actually, not from a student because Haim was very surprised when I told him that I often, it came from us. Andrew Richmond. actually. Oh, I see. Well, but even Hein Geithmann sometimes tells me that he was impressed by that. But that, you know, you presented it as if it were a skill, but it isn't a skill. So what happens is that I often um, go on working, um, especially if I'm really absorbed what I'm doing and by my thoughts, uh, until very late at night. And occasionally <laughs> I end up falling asleep while typing because I'm very, very, very tired, perhaps also because the previous night I didn't sleep much. And so when I wake up in the morning, yes, or in the morning, let's say when I wake up eventually a little later, perhaps I am indeed uh, um, on my keyboard and I'm sometimes surprised to see what I wrote <laughs> as I was falling asleep. Uh, the last, few uh, lines might be completely um, meaningless. Uh, but that's because if I am, if I have the adrenaline high, I just keep working. Um, I well, don't I don't think we can call it an accident when you have your last espresso at midnight every night. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. At least uh, that may be even the second last. Uh, I have one usually okay. later than that. But here is my thing. I have one in the kitchen. Let me see if I can show you. Hold on. Okay. I know I, I cannot remove. He's really short selling himself here I because I, I bought one of those old advertising um, posters that says it's a commercial for coffee and it says coffee exclamation mark. You can sleep when you're dead. So that's basically the point. I mean, I think sleeping is beautiful and occasionally, <laughs> especially during the summer, I enjoy doing that. But otherwise, I think it's a waste of time. So I, I try not to. But and, it's one thing, I mean, feeling like it's a waste of time, but it's another like, how can you function? Like, it just, it doesn't, like, if you sleep for two hours in a night, you're able to get up evidently and continue functioning at a very high level. And has, has it always been that way? Oh, no, that that is true. So it, it does take some exercise. Um, some kind of, I don't know if there's a name for this discipline. It's not yoga or anything like that. But yeah, obviously, uh, I train myself uh, not to sleep anyway. Yeah, okay. but um, that doesn't mean that I'm as. Uh, what did you just say? I'm as functional as if I yeah. did sleep. No, I don't know. But uh, I can easily pull an all-nighter and and be perfectly fine. Uh, at some point in my life, since I have a family who doesn't live here, uh, which is one good reason for me not to waste my time sleeping, but using it to do something else so that when I'm with them, I can be with them. But at some point, uh, they were all uh, in Europe and I ended up teaching a course in Milan at the time when I was teaching here. So it would um, 
teach Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Then on Wednesday evening, I would go to the airport, take a flight. I would arrive in Milan at 8.30 and then at 10, I would start teaching in Milan. And then I would teach also on Friday morning and then I would go to Trento where my family uh, was and be with them before returning to New York. So obviously I would prepare my lectures on the plane. So obviously I would not sleep at all uh, that night. And in fact, not even the following night. It took some exercise, but it's fine. I can do it. Coffee certainly helps them. Okay. Well, I could, I could probably talk for the entire duration of this podcast just about your sleep because there are still many questions left unanswered for me. I also but... have nightmares. When I sleep, I have often nightmares. So I don't like to go to bed uh, for that reason. Oh, <laughs> that's that. See that that adds another hour of questions that I have for you. But uh, are they mm-hmm. well? Are they particular nightmares? I will just satisfy at least one of them. Or, I like, think the, yeah, I think they're all the same actually, and they're all easily explainable deadlines. Uh, um, you know, coming after <laughs> in the form okay. of in, in the form of. Um, monsters of various kinds, sometimes huh. human beings. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's all. It's always about deadlines, I think. But that, Well, that's fascinating. All right, but I'll, I'll save that for uh, another conversation. Now, I think of you, I know you're a logician, obviously, you also do some creative writing. But I think of you, first and foremost, as a metaphysicist or metaphysician i don't know which which you prefer it's fine i think now, it should be meta, it should be metaphysicist but it doesn't matter okay so i told you maybe i didn't tell you but i recently officiated my sister's wedding in uh portland mm-hmm. and as i was getting i was getting officiated by this organization called the universal life church and my understanding is that that is how many people become uh, licensed to officiate weddings, is they go through this particular organization. And as you are paying, so maybe it costs like $100, I don't remember, to get ordained as a minister in this church, you can also pay an extra $50 for a doctorate in metaphysics. And really, yeah, and they'll send you a diploma and everything. And when I was coming to Columbia, I told an old babysitter of mine who's still a very close family friend that I was going to be studying metaphysics. And she asked me to send her my textbooks. And I said, what do you think metaphysics is? And she thought that it would be, uh, it was about crystals and ghosts and phantasms and these sorts of things. So I think that in popular culture, people have a very different understanding of metaphysics from what metaphysics actually is. And this leads me to ask you what you might tell your students on the first day of a metaphysics class. What is it that a metaphysicist is doing? Well, this semester I am teaching metaphysics, in fact, at the to undergrad- undergraduate. Level. Okay. Yeah. And on day one, I think I started as follows. I entered the room and I asked them, 
Do you know why kangaroos are called kangaroos? Do you know why kangaroos are called kangaroos? I have no idea, but because it doesn't sound like an English word, my guess is that it was just adopted from another language. Well, yeah, it all goes back to, I think, 1770, when um, Lieutenant James Cook, the British explorer, visited Australia for the first time, Queensland. So one day he uh, happened upon the animal, which of course he had never seen before. No one had ever seen it before from England. Yeah. Was very surprised and so asked um, a nearby local, uh, what do you call this animal? And the local answered kangaroo. And so he wrote it down, kangaroo in his diary, etc., etc. Went home and told everyone that down there, they have this interesting animal called kangaroo. But of course, in the language of the local, kangaroo meant, sorry, I don't understand you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and, um, now, it may well be a myth. And I remember reading some linguists in the 70s, 1970s, debunking this uh, story that I just told you. So, but... Um, Never mind. The point is that it's not very different when it comes to metaphysics. So that's what I tell my students on day one as I enter the classroom. I.e., you can learn very little from the word, from its etymolo etymology and from the history. Because in the case of metaphysics, as I'm sure you know very well, um, the story is not very different. We, we, typically say that in Western philosophy, metaphysics goes back to Aristotle, right? The first big treatise in metaphysics is Aristotle's metaphysics. Um, but we all know that he never uses that word. He rather speaks of uh, uh, first philosophy. The term itself was introduced uh, much later. Um, so the metaphysics, I think, goes back to you know, the later period, like 335 BC, I think. And only much later, around 60 BCE, his first editor, Andronicus of Rhodes, introduced the term. But the way he introduced the term is telling. So he was trying to put some order. I mean, there was a long his story here and a long history, but I'm going to skip the details. Um, so eventually there were all these writings attributed to Aristotle. Um, and of course, you know, some of them were on ethics, some of them were on logic, some of them were on, um, you know, biology, animals, et cetera, et cetera, politics, all the way. And so he was putting together this stuff, let's say, on 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 his own uh, bookshelf, so to speak. Of course, they were not books in our own sense of the term, but he was just putting them in order, right? So first all this ethics stuff, then the politics, then the logic, blah, 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 all the way to the last ones in his list, which were the physics uh, books. And, and then there were this leftover stuff, which was a bunch <laughs> of, um, a bunch of um, notebooks, I think about 14, short notebooks, no title, were all about roughly the same stuff. So he put them all together and put them right there next to, which is to say after the physics. 
And so that's the origin of the term metaphysics, a ta meta ta physica, meaning the ones after the physics, but on Andronicus of Rhodes' bookshelf. It, so no is other, that what meta means? That's what it means there, yeah. Okay, after I, gets, okay. I think of beyond, meta today as being sort of exactly. just like an abstraction. Exactly. So we get okay. there. So made, uh, after or beyond, that's, that's the idea. Of course, eventually the term was adopted as um, a label for the stuff Aristotle was doing in those books, um, even though he himself, Aristotle, didn't call it metaphysics. And eventually in the history of philosophy, but only relatively recently, I should say, um, you know, this... Um, word, this, uh, what is it? Well, this uh, prefix, meta, in front of physics suggested that this discipline is about what is above the physical reality, what lies right. beyond physical reality, what lies beyond the kind of knowledge that we get from the sciences. Hence, so it's ghosts about and phantasms. and Ghosts, phantasms, you know, spirits, gods, angels, all of that, which, of course, to some extent might even be a part of the subject matter, but for reasons that uh, do not depend on uh, the actual meaning of the word, for reasons that we might even get into at some point later. But the point is, uh, unfortunately, this is why when you said most people have a different understanding of uh, what this is about. The reason is that this word meta tends to be used um, in this way um, in many contexts. And so metaphysics, that's, that means forget about physics, go beyond physics. There is another reality somewhere up there. But look, um, Robinson, I should say that what you said about metaphysics and the a certain popular understanding of what it is about, especially, what is it called? The Universal Life Church uh, understanding. Yeah. What goes for metaphysics goes for philosophy generally. Uh, it goes for many things, uh, many disciplines. But you're probably right that metaphysics suffers, um, um, especially from this uh, set of false expectations of what it is supposed to be about. Uh, that being said, you know, initially it was really the name of, let's say, a theory, what Aristotle presented in those uh, 14 little uh, notebooks. And for a long time, that's what it was. It was Aristotle's metaphysics. Eventually became the name of a field of inquiry. And um, a field of inquiry, which is about topics, issues, questions, such as those uh, dealt with by Aristotle in those books, but not necessarily only those. So there's room for um, some flexibility here. So today's metaphysics, if it started, so metaphysics started with Aristotle, and today, obviously, the, the methods have changed uh, to some extent uh, with logic, uh, possible worlds, these sorts of things. Uh, but it's still fundamentally the same discipline as what he was doing? Well, first of all, I wouldn't even say that he started with Aristotle. I mean, that's the first thing that we have called okay, metaphysics. Yeah. But of course, in the Western world, even before Aristotle, people were doing metaphysics, for example. Um, I don't know, Parmenides, Heraclitus, Anaxagoras, all of them were doing metaphysics, some kind of... Um, 
aspects um, of metaphysics, you know, identity through time, um, uh, parts and wholes, um, unity, etc., etc., existence, uh, being versus non-being, you know, all of that is metaphysics in many ways, and Aristotle talks about these things. So it's, it's older than Aristotle in the uh, Western tradition, but um, never mind. Um, I think in many ways, the answer to your question should really come in two parts. On the one hand, uh, yes, uh, modulo a certain development with regard to the uh, analytical tools that we use, even though, you know, logic was available or rather was one of the things that Aristotle um, uh, articulated mm -hmm. and developed, um, among other things, for the purpose of doing um, uh, metaphysics. Um, but let's say we do have, obviously, a richer um, package of uh, tools uh, to deal with those questions, but the questions are, to some extent, the same. However, and here comes part two, um, between Aristotle and us, there is someone called Kant uh, who um, expressed some misgivings about the possibility of doing what most people think um, we should be doing uh, when we do metaphysics, which is to say to understand right. the ultimate structure of reality. The epistemological turn. And let's say the epistemological turn, where uh, instead of asking yourself, what the world is like, what's the ultimate nature of the world, just yourself, what's the nature of the world as we represent it. And that's, of course, a huge difference. Um, right. To the point that some people might think that if that's what you're doing, uh, investigating the structure of the world as we represent it, then you're not doing metaphysics, you're just doing psychology or something like that. That being said, uh, one cannot ignore the Kantian um, uh, move or turn, whether or not one agrees with it, is by itself an important um, controversial question. So I don't know whether it's itself part of metaphysics or if it is meta-metaphysics <laughs> in the sense of meta, which is uh, popular today. So um, in other words, whether it's a question about the scope, the limits, the boundaries of metaphysics as opposed to it being a question uh, a metaphysical question itself, but it is definitely an important question that um, cannot be ignored today. So I think you, I think you said it was ata meta ta physics physica. Is that is that what you said? Ta meta ta physica. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, quite literally, that meant uh, after physics in this linear order on uh, the yeah. bookshelf. It's a simplified picture, uh, but yeah, right. But it, so it does not mean what we sort of take it to mean given our understanding of what meta is so what then is the real distinction as you see it between physics and metaphysics because when i think of physics i think of the goal the goal of physics is understanding and describing our world as it is using i mean tools of mathematics that's that's just the definition that comes to mind so what is there that metaphysics could be doing that is different then from Good. physics. Notice that you asked your question twice, but the first time you used a definite description, the difference, <laughs> whereas in the second um, formulation of the question, you said, 
what is it that metaphysics can do, you know, that's not done by physics. So um, I don't think it's just one, there's just one difference. So I think the uniqueness presupposition in the use of the definite article um, um, doesn't hold water, but there are differences. Yes, I think there are some differences. Um, one of them is, I think, very close to, can be appreciated by um, going close to the definition that you just offered for, or characterization for physics, which is that physics is um, really mainly about the actual world, the way things are. Whereas metaphysics in, I think, uh, important ways um, is uh, concerned with um, the many alternative ways in which things uh, might be. So not only okay. the actual world, but you know, if you want to put it that way, uh, all possible worlds. Now, of course, okay. um, physics isn't just about the way things are. I mean, the laws of physics have the modal force of necessity, after all. Um, they are laws. Um, and so they also tell us something about the way things must be or the way things can be, the way things must go or can go. In that sense, physics is much more open to, say, possibility than other uh, disciplines that concern themselves with uh, the way things are, such as, for example, history. When you do history, um, I don't know if you have the same phrase in English, but you don't do history with the ifs. Um, you don't counterfactualize. That's not history. I've anymore. never heard that. Yeah, but afraid, I like it. I'm afraid it's um, it's an Italianism. Um, um, so the idea is that you really try to figure out how things went. The only things that matter is the actual world, etc. In physics, as I just said, you go beyond this. Uh, laws have the force of necessity, but it remains true, I think, that the space of possibilities in. Uh, physical theories is somehow determined by the way things are. So what is possible is in many ways uh, determined by our study of the way things are. And what we consider uh, a possibility is um, parasitic upon what we um, take to be actual. In metaphysics, uh, the space of possibilities is, uh, or rather I should say, uh, potentially is much wider. Um, where in metaphysics, you're interested in all sorts of possibilities that are you know, significantly remote from the way things are that um, you, that you can conceive um, even though they violate perhaps even uh, physical laws. So th th one way of putting it is that you have a broader sense of possibility, even though of course, it's an open question whether there is a broadest possible sense of possibility. And it is, of course, also an open question whether, in fact, a good metaphysical theory should deliver a space of possibility that's, in fact, wider than the one we get from physics. But even there, there's room for a distinction between the two. Because suppose you are a physicalist. I tend to be a physicalist. Do I tend to be Can that? Can you uh, define that for people who don't know what? Yeah, I'm about to do so. Uh, so I suppose you believe that uh, physics tells the whole truth about uh, the world, and also, therefore, for the reason that I've just said, insofar as it has laws, etc., 
uh, about not just the way the world is, but the way the world uh, can be. Okay. So suppose in particular that, among other things, um, the ontology that comes with physics, which is to say the view concerning what there is, is just, you know, material stuff in space-time. Okay, so suppose that's what your view is. Particles or... Whatever there is. It could be particles, it could be waves, it could be the wave function, whatever it is. But the point is, suppose you believe that physics tells the whole truth and therefore that there's no nothing else to be said besides what physics uh, is telling us. Well, this very claim doesn't belong to physics. This is a metaphysical claim. It may be the only claim that you make that goes beyond physics in the relevant sense of the word beyond, but it's, it's not something that belongs to the physical theory itself. The claim that physics is the whole story is, is a claim about so physics. It's a claim about physics and it's a claim about the whole story. So it's a claim about the space of possibilities and therefore it's a metaphysical claim. Um, so that's another, uh, if you want, uh, difference that one is perhaps about the other, but not vice versa. Um, um, but look, there are many other um, differences or important, uh, significant um, points of divergence. For instance, in physics, we have the luxury, if we have good funding, to run experiments to test our hypothesis. Um, in metaphysics, as more generally, I think, in philosophy... Uh, you get a budget for chalk. Yeah, exactly. So we only have thought experiments. Uh, I mean... There's no way you can run a, a lab experiment to figure out whether you know, the solution to the mind-body problem or say whether a certain uh, theory about the mind-body problem is true uh, or whether three-dimensionalists uh, are correct versus four-dimensionalists or vice versa uh, or whether a whole is something over and above the sum of the parts or whether it's the same as the sum of the parts. Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so those are questions that, as every question, uh, cry for an answer, but I'm afraid you can't run uh, an empirical experiment. Um, physics, by contrast, tries to settle its questions by means of experiments. It's an empirical science in that sense. Um, that may be just a matter of methodology. Of course, you can have thought experiments in physics as well. The point is that you cannot have lab experiments in philosophy, I think. Almost never, let me put it this way. So you have, we, you mentioned uh, the question, what is there? Which is the, the question of ontology yeah. and how a physicalist uh, might... Well, I don't know. That's, I guess, what I'm going to ask you. They might say, okay, they believe in physics as like the story of what there is. What are some of the alternatives and how might uh, a metaphysicist, meta, yeah, I think that's what we agreed on. How might a metaphysicist go about arguing that there are more things than what is physical? Okay, well, let me first of all say one thing about ontology, because um, I want to be sure that we understand each other here. So, I actually try to tend to think that 
one should draw a distinction here between ontology and metaphysics. Okay. As far I think as of ontology as part of metaphysics. Well, I think of it as prior to metaphysics. Perhaps in the end of the day, it doesn't make much of a difference. But the idea... No, but that's important. ...is this. It's that, uh, you know, ontological questions are questions about what there is. So when, in doing ontology, uh, you, um, yeah, you try to figure out what things exist. That's the task of drawing up an inventory of uh, the universe, as, as C.D. Broad once put it. It's a metaphor that's uh, very popular today. In doing metaphysics, you ask of those things that exist, what they are. So this is a distinction that uh, you can find in Aristotle, actually, but it was rather popular in the Middle Ages. Aquinas, for example, distinguishes between unsit questions. Unsit is Latin for whether is. So question about whether something is, and uh, quid sit questions, which are questions about, quid means what, about what something is. And the first sort of question uh, belong uh, to ontology, in my understand, on my understanding. You ask whether something is, and the second, what is it? That kind of question um, belongs to metaphysics. And of course, um, it's not just that one is part of the other. And if you put it this way, one comes before the other, because as Aristotle once put it, and uh, as Aquinas uh, put it clearly, and as other people you know, later did, um, you, ask, you start asking the quid question, the what is it question, only about something that exists. So only after having determined that something exists. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Yes. Except now, we do ask questions about, uh, I mean, we, I took a course with you on yeah. what there is not, and we asked about what those things were like. So that's right. I mean, it's um, not a that's, perfect that's, distinction, but I get what you're saying, why uh, ontology comes first. In a way, I mean, uh, you know, Descartes said that this is actually a logical mistake, and many people would agree that you cannot even... You cannot ask yourself questions of the form, does X exist without at the same time, if not even before, presupposing uh, figuring X out what level. it is, figuring out what it is, oh. what X is. In my opinion, the what in question is not a metaphysical what. It's just a what that attaches a meaning to the words that we're using when asking the question, does X exist? So I need to know, I need to have a concept, but it, that concept doesn't necessarily amount to um, a metaphysical characterization. So if I ask you whether people exist or whether tables exist, obviously I need to tell you what, it, what those words um, are supposed to uh, refer to. But that doesn't mean that I have to provide you with a metaphysical characterizations of people and uh, tables and so on. But anyway, it's a long story. It's complicated. But let's put it this way. Um, ontology is about... Um, uh, existential uh, questions. Whether or not you can, in fact, do ontology without metaphysics, as I like to put it, is uh, perhaps controversial, but it's not crucial to answer your question, which is how do people go about answering ontological questions, right? Is that... Um... Yeah, so I mean, what I have in mind and what I think of as an ontological question of this nature is the problem of universals. So 
uh, whether red exists as an abstract object. Is there is there some red? Yeah. Uh, and so I, that I, I think say, of as a metaphysical question. Right. So I would say that's an ontological question, um, but it has a metaphysical uh, side. I would say that most people today, but I dare add um, also throughout history, perhaps in a different language, would say that to figure out what there is, we have to look for the truth makers of those statements that we take to be true. Or if you prefer, we have to figure out what sort of things must exist in order for our beliefs about uh, the world, in order for our picture of the world, in order for our favorite theory to be true. So if we have a theory about the world, if we have a belief, if you like, a view about, let's say, how things are, let me put it in the uh, flat language of uh, being rather than possibility uh, for, this, for a second. And if that belief is true, as expressed, say, by some uh, statement, then there must be it must be true thanks to the world, thanks to the way the world is, not just thanks to our own uh, state of mind, right? Truth calls for a contribution, that so goes the idea, um, a direct contribution from reality. So in particular, if it is true, there must be something in the world that makes it true. Call that a truth maker of our belief or our, our statement. So most people would agree that um, one way to figure out what there is, is to extract the truth makers of our best view of the world. Notice. I like this. Yeah, notice that, and this is a footnote, uh, in a way, this is really going to deliver only what uh, Quine would call our ontological commitments. Right. And it is, and it is compatible with a pre-Kantian approach as well as the, with the post-Kantian approach, um, um, depending on all sorts of uh, further details we add about truth. But I'm going to, let's forget about that. The idea is we look for what must exist in order for, you know, our best theory of the world to be true. We try to extract the truth makers. Notice that, of course, this is no straightforward business. So suppose our belief is expressed by means of a sentence of English. It doesn't follow that we can directly extract the truth makers just by looking at the sentence in transparency, so to speak. Most of the things we say, even when we express our deepest beliefs, are not ontologically transparent. So if I tell you, for example, and this is an, an example that goes back to, I think, Morton White, there's a difference in age between Alf and Beth. It looks as though I'm making a statement that quantifies over age differences. There right, so is something. There is uh, an age difference between Alf and Beth. But of course, it would be a mistake to infer from this that I'm committed to the view that there are such things as age differences, just because I say there is an age difference. So. The point is that most people would agree that we should really go below the level of um, grammar and figure out, first of all, what is uh, the exact meaning of our statement 
the one that's ontologically transparent and from which we can extract the relevant truth maker. So for instance, I could tell you that really what I meant to say is that either Alf is older than Beth or Beth is older than Alf. And in putting it this way, of course, I no longer quantify over age differences. In fact, I don't even mention them. You must have read the beautiful dialogue uh, by Stephanie and David Lewis on Holes, 1970, yeah. where Argo, who is a materialist nominalist, and therefore does not believe in the existence of such immaterial entities as holes, says that when he says there's a hole in this piece of cheese, the phrase there's a hole in should really be understood as a shape predicate, like is triangular. And in, um, in this specific case, it, it is um, really a different way of expressing the shape predicate is perforated. And so the sentence in question, deep down for him, means the piece of cheese is perforated, and that's just a sentence about the cheese. It tells us something about how the cheese is. It doesn't assert the existence of holes in the cheese. Now, that paper is about holes, but of course, it's a good metaphor of what goes on um, in every ontological debate, and in particular, the debate on uh, the problem of universals uh, to which you were alluding earlier. So the problem of universals is essentially the following, whether in addition to particular things such as particular individuals, such as uh, you and I, or tables and chairs, uh, things located in space and time in a very specific way, uh, no two things can be in the same place at the same time, and no single thing can be more than one place at one time. Say, in addition to these things, there are also so-called universal entities, which violate these two principles. Um, now, deep, you know, in concrete examples, what that means is whether in addition to objects, there are also properties. So how can philosophers address this question. Well, one relatively standard way of doing it has been to engage in debates concerning the correct answer to the question, what are the truth makers of sentences such as, for example, Robinson is sitting or snow is white or Alf loves Beth. Some think that these statements, insofar as we take them to be true, owe their truth to two sorts of entities, both particulars and universal. So for instance, the sentence, Robinson, let's say snow is white, calls for two things. Well, snow is white is problematic because snow isn't really an object. Let's say Robinson okay. is sitting. Okay. Sure. Uh, let's say Robinson is wise. Let me use this example. Okay. Yeah. I like Robinson that one. is wise. Um, so they think that clearly Robinson is one of the truth makers of this claim. But that's not enough. In addition to Robinson, there's also wisdom. What's the difference? Robinson is at any time in a specific place, and nothing else is there. Well, this might be controversial, but never mind. 
Um, the statue in the clay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we might want to go back to that later. But anyway, so whereas wisdom, which is the second ingredient, the second truth maker, the second thing in the world that's responsible for the truth of the sentence, assuming it is true, Robinson is wise, that is uh, not a particular entity. It's not like um, you. It, uh, among other things, um, may be found in various other places. Um, for example, wherever there is a person who is wise, you also find wisdom. The very same wisdom, numerically identical. The very same thing is to be found both here and there whenever you have two, say, individuals who are wise. So they think that you need both. Why do you need both? Because if Robinson were the only truth maker, if the particular were the only truth maker, then we wouldn't have enough resources to explain the difference between the truth of Robinson is wise, on the one hand, and the falsity of Robinson is foolish assuming that that is indeed a false sentence. Because if all we have is Robinson, the two sentences would have the same truth maker, so they would have to be, let's say, both true or both false. I mean, when's the difference? Right. If, if not, from the fact that in one case, you have wisdom as well, suitably related to Robinson, and therefore they together serve as truth makers of the statement, whereas in the other case, you don't have that suitable connection between foolishness and Robinson, and therefore uh, that sentence turns out to be false. So that's one way of thinking here. And as you can see, it's about what makes the sentence true or false, whatever it is. Now, others disagree with this view. Others such, disagree. Such as you, perhaps. Such as me. <laughs> So-called nominalists disagree with this picture for a number of reasons. Uh, of course, it's a huge, long story, but... Um, they think that uh, bringing in this additional character, the universal, say wisdom, is not going to, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Now, why is it not a good thing? Some might be inclined to put it as follows. Well, you know, such universals are mysterious entities. We don't have clear identity conditions from for them. I don't know if that's clear enough uh, to use. I mean, it's hard to say what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for A and B to count as the same universal. Mm -hmm. um, I can add something if you want uh, later. But anyway, so... They have misgivings about such things. They seem to be perhaps abstract in ways that um, their ontological taste uh, doesn't like, whatever. There may be some reasons of this general sort. But there are also arguments uh, to the effect that adding such mysterious entities to our ontological inventory of what there is next to the particulars isn't going to do the explanatory work that it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. This is actually an argument that I uh, found rather compelling when I you know, was first studying these things uh, 
as a kid. Um, so the idea is this. Uh, so let's present this as an objection from the nominalist to the, let's say, realist about universals. So the nominalist says there are only particulars. The realist says, oh, but if you only have particulars, you cannot explain the difference between uh, the truth of some statements and the falsity of others. So if you only have Robinson, you cannot explain the difference between the truth of Robinson is wise and the falsity of Robinson is foolish. Mm -hmm. And then the nominalist responds, oh, well, wait a second, I see the point, but how do you explain that difference? And the realist says, well, obviously, as follows. In one case, we've got Robinson and Wisdom, who are suitably related. And in the other case, we have uh, Robinson and Foolishness, who are not suitably related. The nominalist is going to say, related? What does that mean? The realist is going to say, oh, obviously, what I just said about wisdom also applies to relations. So, for example, Alf loves Beth. That's true, not only thanks to Alf and Beth, to particulars, but also thanks to love. So there is this universal, which in this case is a relation, linking Alf and Beth, and that's why the sentence is true. So there is a, you know, an important connection here between the entities uh, in question, which is sometimes called exemplification or instantiation. You know, Plato would say participation. So the particulars exemplify the relevant universal, they instantiate that universal, they participate in that universal, and so on and so forth. And the nominalist is going to say, but wait a second, isn't this going to give rise to infinite regress? Because now you've got the problem of explaining why a certain relation between, say, Robinson and wisdom obtains, namely the relation of exemplification. You have to explain why a certain relation obtains between Alf, Beth, and love, that relation of exemplification. Relations are, after all, um, universals, right? So you have to explain that. And this, as you can see, gives rise to um, uh, further questions of the same kind. Because if you say that there is a relation of exemplification, then now you have three things. Robinson, wisdom, exemplification. And you want to make sure that um, these three things exemplify <laughs> um, sorry, that, um, that Robinson and Wisdom exemplify exemplifications. And now we've got the second uh, exemplification to the picture, and then we're going to get a third one, and so on ad infinitum. Notice that this is an argument sometimes presented as uh, Bradley's uh, regress from the British philosopher Bradley. Uh, very beginning of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. It's actually a very old argument that you can find in the history of philosophy, even in other tra uh, traditions. So, for instance, one of the oldest versions I found of this argument comes from the um, Indian Buddhist uh, early medieval philosopher Dharmakirti, I think 6th, 7th century BC, um, um, CE, he had a very similar argument against the reality of relations. And uh, that's how the argument is often taken to, to work. It shows that relations cannot be 
treated as uh, universal as themselves, otherwise you've got this regress. But if that's not what they are, if there is in Robinson is wise, there's not point to a relationship between Robinson and wisdom, then what is it? Now the nominalist says, um, you see, all this story is going to give rise to explanation questions at each step. So you may want to step by, um, to stop at the next step by saying, well, it is a fact, a brute fact, that Robinson exemplifies wisdom. And it is not a fact that Robinson exemplifies foolishness. But if you stop there with a brute fact, then I'm going to stop at the very beginning without even making that stamp, step and say that it is a brute fact that Robinson is wise without bringing wisdom into the picture. It's a brute mm -hmm. fact that you are wise. It's a brute fact that you're not foolish. For the realist, it's a brute fact that you exemplify wisdom and it's a brute fact that you do not exemplify foolishness. So they have this extra ontological cost of having added universals to their picture, but on pain of infinite regress, they have to still um, satisfy themselves with brute facts. So the nominalist is gonna say, what's the use of that? Let's just stop at the very beginning. And so we don't need those additional truth makers. So you see, it's a long story, as you can see, but the idea is that uh, you have different approaches uh, to really what we're doing when we are looking for those truth makers. We want them to explain something. Somewhere there must be brute facts. Where exactly we stop and accept brute facts is a matter of controversy. And the whole game ends up being a game of, um, let's say, trade-off between ontological costs or ontological investments on the one hand and explanatory force on the other. I start with the nominalist because although, of course, the argument I've just given to you uh, is very um, rough and extremely um, superficial in the details, but still, I side with that kind of line of thinking and I think there's no reason to bring in those universals. I think is, you are, yeah. Is there a simple way of, of explaining how you would paraphrase Robinson is wise? I would not paraphrase it at all. I think it, uh, um, is fine as it stands. The question perhaps is how we're going to understand the phrase is wise given that it doesn't pick out a universal and it's being exemplified by the uh, individual picked out by the proper name Robinson. Here there are various brands of nominalism. I like linguistic nominalism, which is to say, I think that is wise, it's just a predicate in our language and predicates are devices that we use to classify things into various groups. So we've mm -hmm. got this label, yellow, which we apply to a bunch of things which are called or said to be yellow. We've got this other pre uh, predicate, red is red, which we use to uh, speak of other things, the ones that we call red. And similarly, we have is wise, is foolish, labels that we use to classify things. We have a desperate need in our lives to put some order uh, and the things out there, we need to categorize, we need to draw lines, but there is no 
presumption that these lines carve at the joints as um, right. uh, Socrates, Plato, uh, Plato Socrates used to say. So it's just words that we apply. So to say that Socrates is um, wise or that Robinson is wise is to say that both Socrates and Robinson um, deserve being called that way. The meaning of these phrases is fixed by our linguistic practices, by our um, language game, if you like, um, maybe conventional to some extent, not necessarily entirely conventional, but basically I would say therefore that it's not a matter of figuring out a better logical form for, uh, um, to attach to the sentence, Robinson is wise. I think the logical form is fine. It's subject predicate. It's just that the predicate doesn't do anything metaphysically robust. It doesn't pick out a universal. It simply registers the way we use that um, phrase to classify things, and in particular to classify you among the certain group of people. Um, I know yeah. this is a, this can be very disappointing and so on, and it no, gives no, no. all sorts uh, of questions about truth being conventional, not being conventional. It's a long story, of course. But. Yeah, I have obviously not thought about it to the same degree that you have, but I'm also sympathetic to the nominalist way of going about things. Just because, well, I feel like my reasoning is just, it's not as robust as yours. It's just I have difficulty understanding why I need to appeal to abstract objects to explain what I think or feel, but I'm, I'm, or how I observe the world. And a lot of it though, probably has to do with the fact that I've been uh, compromised in a sense by physics. I just already see the world in a certain way and physics seems to, uh, very cleanly, even though I don't know a lot of it, uh, explain things uh, without, so I mean, explaining love between two people as some um, physiochemical process, uh, rather than requiring an abstract object, which doesn't fit into my ontology of the world because of how I've been convinced by physics. That's my sort of I don't know, bottom level or top level, high yeah. up view of why nominalism just seems to work better for me. So you're a, a physicalist nominalist. Yeah, I don't dislike that. I mean, uh, many people find it extremely disappointing to be told that what's, what goes on between um, Elf and Beth um, is just chemistry uh, in the you know technical no, I don't find that at all I find that I think that's just beautiful. a sad truth yeah I think that's the sad truth um, it leaves perhaps room for poetry under a different description uh, it's not the one that comes with this you know multiplication of levels and multiplication of entities um, you know as I said perhaps it's a sad truth but um, that's how it is that being said, you mentioned something important here, which is, uh, perhaps I did too, uh, in a way. I'm sure you did. Which is that our ontological decisions are determined to a great extent 
by our explanatory needs, right? So mm -hmm. if I if I don't need something, I'm not going to posit it, so to speak. If I don't, if I do need something, meaning if I cannot do without it, then I I'm afraid I have to posit it. So Argo embargo that I mentioned earlier, the characters of the dialogue by Stephanie and David Lewis, they disagree initially on whether there are holes. Eventually, Argyll realizes that one cannot really do without holes in the sense that one cannot really provide suitable paraphrases, suitable hole-free paraphrases of every statement that seems to commit us to there being holes. Uh, so for example, it's easy to paraphrase, there's a hole in the cheese with the cheese is perforated. But you realize that you need really an infinity of such predicates because you may want to say there are three holes or two holes. So you have to have doubly perforated, triply perforated, one predicate for each number n. And then it's not enough because, of course, some holes may be round, others might be square. So you really need the predicates doubly roundly perforated, singly squarely perforated, and so on and so forth. You know, it gets extremely complicated. And then you have holes that can be maybe in the shape of a donut. So there are two donut-shaped holes inside this slice of cheese. That gets really complicated. And there's a difference between the two donuts being one next to each other versus they're being, say, interlocked. So, I mean, topology is a good science of all these distinctions, but eventually Argo gives up. He says, okay, you're right, I cannot do it. I cannot paraphrase holes away, so they exist. And then continue to say, but they're not what you think they are. And here, after the ontological concession, comes the metaphysical characterization that is still very different from the one of um, the opponent. But the point is, it can be very hard to do without something, to paraphrase a putative entity away, and therefore we might decide that we need such things. Quine himself is responsible for a famous so-called indispensability argument, the Putnam-Quine argument, to the effect that we need absolute entities, in particular mathematical entities, in order to do physics, because physics uses math, uses math. Therefore, even if we're physicalists, in fact, the, by virtue of being physicalists, we find ourselves forced <laughs> to accept mm -hmm. non-physical non entities, i.e. mathematical entities. Um, they are indispensable. We cannot... We don't, ha we don't have to go into it, but I'm yeah. correct. You, you don't like this argument. No, I don't like this argument because okay. I think... Um, there always remains the question, well, have you done your job properly? Maybe you can't do without them. So, Right, like science without numbers. Correct. Or so, some, some such program. Some such program. I think that one doesn't quite work, but some such program, yeah. So the point is, we make ontological decisions at some eventually. Uh, we don't have a knockdown argument. We don't have an, the ultimate answer concerning whether or not some entities are really indispensable. But of course, we need to move on with our lives. So we do make decisions based on whatever we can do. And um, the way you put it earlier, I think is perfectly correct in this sense. Eventually we may change our views. Um, 
Okay. Speaking though of moving on with our lives, I've already kept you for an hour and 15 minutes. And I know you're a hardworking, busy man. So even though I had this huge, well, I sent you some questions across a variety of subjects. Do you think we have time uh, for one more? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So Saul Kripke, I think yesterday passed, was it yesterday that he passed away? Yeah. And he is, I don't know, a titan of 20th century and I guess early 21st century philosophy. Uh, he was a serious genius and yeah. made contributions across wide fields, not just sort of pure yeah. philosophy, but logic, mathematics. I know he has some important unpublished papers on piano arithmetic. Yeah. yeah. So I thought this might be a nice time because I didn't get to study with him ever, even though I was in New York, yeah. uh, just to hear at least what some of his major contributions were from you. Well, you know, and I know, I know, many, as I just said, many, there are many, many, I mean, my first exposure to his work was through logic and motor logic in particular. Uh, obviously, although the idea of explaining the meaning of the modal operators in terms of quantification of a possible worlds, um, was, not new. I mean, it, and what does that mean? I mean, I know what that means, but, but it means is there a way of explaining what it means to my mom or somebody who doesn't know? Philosophy? Yeah, to say that something is necessary is to say that it isn't just true, but true in every possible world. So, really, the necessity operator is a universal quantifier. And to say that something is possible is to say that although it may not be true in this world, there is at least one world where it's true. So, it's an existential quantifier. So, right. so it's possible that there could mind, be. Yeah, we have to keep in mind that in those years, um, Quine had argued against the intelligibility of modal logic because it is not extensional. Remember the argument to the fact that if you substitute one term for another that's co-referential in the context of a sentence involving uh, a modal operator, you may end up um, with um, a sentence that has a different truth value. Yeah. And that means it's not extensional. So necessarily, uh, nine is greater than seven, than seven. Nine is the number of planets. But it doesn't follow that necessarily the number of planets is greater than seven. That kind of argument you may be familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and so Quine said, look, uh, unless we can make sense of this stuff, um, we shouldn't do modal logic. It's not good. Um, and then Kripke by saying, but wait a second, the modal operators are just quantifiers. Really pointed out a way of keeping modal logic under control semantically, which is really what um, uh, Quine was uh, somehow um, asking for. Um, of course, this language of possible worlds is highly problematic uh, in other ways. Um, but uh, only some philosophers took it seriously. Um, it's a device. Um, you may even consider right. it a metalinguistic device. I mean, again, this is... And, and when you say it becomes problematic, do you mean when people start taking it uh, literally and believing that there are, in a sense, these possible worlds out there? That's when, that's when it gets iffy. And, well, somehow, but, but, it, but as yeah. a tool, it's still very useful. Yes, but the iffy part cannot be 
dismissed because after all, the idea is that we're quantifying over possible worlds in the middle language, right? So the truth conditions for say box P are, and here comes a statement in the meta language, i.e. English, P is true in every possible world. So we're quantifying over possible worlds in the middle language. And again, Quine had said, uh, to be is to be the value of a bound variable. So those things exist over which you're quantifying. So you seem to be committing yourself to there being such things as possible worlds, but what are they? Blah, blah, blah. Now, to say that it's just a convenient heuristic device is to give expression to the belief that, oh no, I'm not really committing myself to such things as possible worlds. Um, but it's not, of course, a solution uh, or an answer to uh, the worry that there is some commitment here that cries for an explanation. Now, Kripke never really went into it, uh, although, of course, technically, the language of possible worlds uh, doesn't do any work whatsoever. You just have a set, W, and uh, the semantics tells us that box P is true if and only if P is true relative to any element of that set W. Whatever that set is, you know, it's up for grabs. And that means that, in a way, the semantics is neutral as to what exactly is doing the work here. Possible worlds, abstract entities, stories about the way the world might be. Um points in an abstract space, whatever. You know, Kripke delivers a framework that is neutral in this regard. You may want to say both ontologically and metaphysically neutral with respect to the entities over which we're quantifying in um, explaining the meaning of the modal operators. But that step was huge. As I said, the idea wasn't totally new, but Kripke added something to that idea, which is the accessibility relation and so really in the end is box P is true if, it's, if P is true in every world accessible from the given one. And similarly for possibility, if, it, if the sentence is true in some world accessible. And now it all becomes a matter of figuring out what properties this accessibility relation satisfies. And depending on which uh, property you uh, say it has, for example, it's transitive, it's reflexive, it's Euclidean, whatever, you get a different model logic. And in fact, you get... Also, sorts of modal logics, not necessarily logics of necessity and possibility, but for example, logic logics. time, temporal logic, epistemic logic, all the way to even the logic of provability, logics for the operator. It is provable in piano arithmetic that. So that, that's what I was going to go next. Just this is, I guess, more of like a yes or no question. But and am I correct? I mean, this is just far from simply a philosophical advance, but an advance for mathematics, for computer science, for physics. I mean, it has, a, I'm not saying it's critical to mathematics or it's critical to physics, uh, but there are applications there where because yeah, of the possible world semantics. Okay, great. Yeah. Are there any but other... That's not the only thing that Kripke did. I mean, that's just... The right, that's what I was going to ask. What are yeah. some of the other things that you have well, in mind? Well, another important... Uh, contribution, of course, uh, is his theory of truth. And then um, perhaps his reading of Wittgenstein on following a rule. That's a very important um, and I think extremely influential book. And of course, his um, uh, naming, book, and naming and Necessity. So his philosophy of language, 
the arguments against the descriptive theory of proper names, all of that. Is I mean, that something that you're equipped to talk about right now, or would you need more preparation? No, <laughs> to, depending okay, on well, that's one that I'm particularly curious about. What was the causal theory of naming and, and or is, and how does it differ from the descriptive theory? Yes, I wouldn't actually draw the opposition here between descriptive and causal. I would say that the causal account is an added element to the more basic step, uh, which plays a major role in uh, naming a necessity, which is an argument against the descriptive account of proper names, an, an argument against the idea that proper names name insofar as they somehow amount to descriptions of um, the things they name. So this was a common view uh, uh, that was, by the way, um, made important by certain applications uh, in connection with uh, the puzzles of non-existing, so-called non-existing entities and so on. That sometimes a name, a grammatical name such as Pegasus, turns out to be not a name at all because it doesn't name after all. It's just a an abbreviated description. It's a description in disguise. It really stands for the wind horse. Mm -hmm. And so when you say Pegasus doesn't exist, you're really saying that the wind horse doesn't exist. And when you There's say no the wind X horse such doesn't that exist, X is you're actually saying exactly. not none of the things that exist is a wind horse. But so this is the story we get from, from Russell, right? And eventually from Quine and what there is. So it's a convenient way of doing away with problematic names to treat them as descriptions. Quine, of course, pointed out that it's hard to, in some cases, to come up with the correct description. If it is a fictional name, typically we do have a corresponding description. In fact, if it is a fictional name, chances are that everybody would agree that um, they are disguised descriptions, even though the description may be the whole uh, mythology or the whole Sherlock Holmes stories or whatever it is. It's a long description, but fine. But Quine also said, well, it doesn't have to be very informative. It can be just the thing that pegasizes. So to say that Pegasus doesn't exist is to say that nothing pegasizes. You know the part of the story. The point is that uh, even with respect to names that do name, one might think that such names have a meaning in a similar way. So uh, Aristotle, the teacher of Alexander, uh, Plato, the teacher of Aristotle, um, identifying descriptions, descriptions that pick out the reference of the name. And in a way, it is via the description that the name denotes. In fact, most of the names about um, people who no longer exist are names that we that we have acquired that way by description, right? We attach a meaning to those names, we understand those names and what they refer to thanks to a certain description of their referent. So if I use the word Aristotle, um, you and I attach to it, in fact, a number of descriptions such as the 
author of the first met metaphysics book, or um, as I said, the teacher of Alexander the Great, and so on and so forth. So there was this view around that names really are somehow, um, they come with descriptions. And uh, Kripke showed that this is just not the way it works, that names refer to what they refer directly, not by a, a description. And, um, you know, the arguments there are fascinating. Some of them have been the subject of enormous discussion ever since. Either Kripke's own examples or other examples. Is there an easy way of reconstructing the basic? Well, the, take the famous Gödel uh, example that he has uh, in Naming a Necessity. So suppose we identify the name Gödel with a description the logician who proved the famous incompleteness theorem of arithmetic. Let's say the, the logician who proved the incompleteness theorem of, of uh, Pianus arithmetic. Okay. All right, that makes sense. That's probably how you and I have uh, learned to use the word good or to use that name. I know it because it's the guy that Heim's always talking about. <laughs> but then Kripke says, suppose that unbeknownst to us, it was actually some other guy, some Schmidt, who proved that theorem. You know, maybe Gödel was an imposter, something like that. In that case, by using the name Gödel, we would be referring to that person, Schmidt, given that that person is the one who proved the theorem. See, in fact, what I just said, Gödel was an imposter, wouldn't even be correct because at that point, the name Gödel would refer to Schmidt, yeah. who actually did prove. But that's clearly not what we want to say. We want to say that the name Gödel refers to that guy that we have in mind who went to Princeton and who's... Regardless of what he did. Exactly, regardless of, what, regardless of whether the description is true. In fact, the description in this case would be false, showing that it isn't part of the meaning of the name Gödel. Um, it might be a good way to introduce the name, but then we may want to kick the description away when we find out that the theorem was proved by Schmidt. But the, at that point, the name is still in place and still refers, the name Gödel still refers to the guy who went to Princeton. It doesn't refer to the person uh, in Vienna known as Schmidt. That's just the beginning, but you see how it works, right? Um, so the, the relationship between names and descriptions is definitely not the one that most people thought it was. Um, we may use a description to introduce a name, but that's not a, to say that the description gives us the meaning of the name. In fact, names are just labels that are attached to things uh, directly without this detour via the description. And so here comes the causal theory um, at this point. So how are they attached and how do we really um, how does the, the name Gödel really come to us if it isn't via the description, et cetera, et cetera? Well, then the idea is that there is an initial um, process of naming an object, say a person, an original uh, act of dubbing the person, you know, say Gödel. And then eventually there is a chain, a causal chain that brings that original um, act all the way to us, uh, preserving the meaning of, not the meaning, sorry, the 
correct semantic relationship between the name Gödel and the object and its uh, right. reference. I imagine, though, that there are analogous objections uh, to the Gödel case in which, like, a baby is uh, christened Jacob and then switched in the crib with another baby and exactly. uh, such sorts of things. But okay. Yeah, those are cases that may even be problematic for the direct Just, reference theory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, they have, they have been discussed, yes. Uh, but you see, the, this is the point. The point is that Kripke uh, opened the table to a huge um, discussion about how these things uh, work and how important they are uh, in ordinary language, but not only. Um, and so his influence on... Uh, Contemporary philosophy of language is, I think, comparable to Frege's influence uh, in many ways. And there are many things that he added here and there, uh, each of which was incredibly important, such as the distinction between, you know, an a priori truth and a necessary truth. You know, most people would identify them. And then here comes the meter in Paris, which we take to be the standard so it's necessarily true. So the question is, um, take the sentence, the meter of Paris or in Paris is one meter long. Right? That's yeah. analytically true or a priori true. You don't have to right. go there and measure it to know that it is <laughs> one meter long. Yeah. But it isn't necessarily true because it might have been longer <laughs> or shorter. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, we realize that the famous distinction between epistemology and metaphysics, so here, a priori and necessity, can again be illustrated in completely novel ways. So all of this has been incredibly influential. And remember, we started from modal logic, then the theory of truth, then Wittgenstein following a rule, and then we got this, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and often, if you go to his classes, You'll see, you know, going to his classes, you would see him perhaps lecturing in strange ways. He might get lost in some side comments, etc. But then all of a sudden you have, you know, a strike of genius. I remember once, I wasn't there, but he told me, you know, when he put, pointed out that the use mentioned distinction isn't enough because he, the example, I think, was you pronounce the word pronounce thus, pronounce. So the first occurrence of pronounce use use the second is mention all right and the, what about the third one right demonstration <laughs> exactly but you see there you go uh, everybody thought it was just use mention <laughs> yeah etc and so you know he was really uh, a genius in many ways and uh, certainly a very interesting philosopher. You mentioned his writings on Gödel and so on. There's so much in there. And usually all of it is, usually it's, it's extremely interesting. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think there are many philosophers whose production can be said to be interesting across the board uh, as uh, Saul Kripke. So it's clearly a, a tragic loss. It's also, in a way, the end of an era um, 
for most of us who you know lived all of their lives with people such as Kripke and now he's not with us anymore so it's very mm-hmm. sad well i have no plans on revolutionizing philosophy anytime soon so i'll just hope that the podcast has to do the work uh, <laughs> but well thank you so much for joining me uh this was really fun you're as as lovely virtually on a podcast as uh, smoking a cigarette after metaphysics so thanks for answering all of my questions with such a plum oh thank you for the chat <laughs>